We are continuing to binge read the Bible together, and this is kind of an attempt at the beginning of this year to have an overview of Scripture uh, with the intent of helping you and me uh, to read these sections of Scripture with greater effectiveness. And I know sometimes just getting through some of the major sections can be a bit of a slog. People start with gusto and Genesis and then hit Leviticus and kind of get bogged down or hit the prophets and get bogged down again. And so we want to just give you a few tips and pointers, some insights that might uh, fuel the fire, keep things going as we try and binge read through the Bible together or tackle any section that you want. My encouragement is read, read, read the Bible, especially during these days, during this time, so that we can hear from God, so that we can have faith in his purposes, so that we can weather the storm, uh, whatever those storms are that come our way. Okay, so we've had a look at a number of major sections of scripture. We've looked at that first big section, the Torah. That's the law, the first five books. Sometimes we call that the Pentateuch. And that's really just so foundational to all of scripture. So I encourage you to go to the Torah, go to the law, and see how foundational those stories are. Whenever a story occurs first in the Bible, and sets a, a precedent that follows through the rest of scripture. So dig into those foundational stories. And then we looked at another major section uh, that we call the historical books. And it's not history like we studied in school, dry, old kind of textbooks that we had to wade through and memorize dates. We're not asking you to memorize all of the kings of Israel or anything like that. Really, this is historical narrative. This is historical story. This is God's story through human agency as we witness real history happening through these pages of Scripture. But it's told in such a way that it invites us into the story in order to see God's story. And so that's a really exciting way to read the historical books. And then we tackled the wisdom literature. These are things like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, this great section of wisdom, which has a whole lot of poetry in it. And it calls us to slow down, to contemplate, to meditate and reflect. And it calls us to seek wisdom. So some great sections of the Bible. Today we come to the very last major section of our Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and that is the prophets. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of a prophet. Uh, maybe you think of John the Baptist uh, you know, wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. Or maybe you even think of like a fortune teller in some tent looking into a crystal ball and predicting the future. In fact, I think that often when we talk about the prophets, people think that we're going to talk about future stuff. But here's a reality that might be surprising to you. The reality is that almost all all of the material that we find in the prophets is actually grounded in the immediate future of Israel, Judah, and the surrounding nations at the time. Almost all the material is directly applicable to the people who first heard it, who first read it, who first lived it. That's really important to get because we have to take the setting, the geopolitical setting of the material really seriously if we're going to dig into some of that. Here's some interesting stats that some people have compiled looking through the, the uh, prophets. Uh, less than 5% of the message of the prophets has to do with 
the new covenant age. Now, the prophets make up um, the same amount of material as our New Testament, about that much. So 5% is still quite a bit. But less than 5% has to do with the new covenant age. Here's another thing that might be surprising. Less than 2% has to do directly with the Messiah. So often when we think of the prophets, we think of all the prophecy and the promises about the Messiah. There's a lot, but of all the material, less than 2% of that material is directly to do with the promise of the Messiah. And then here's another maybe surprise for you. Less than 1% actually concerns events that are yet to come in our time. Now that's important to pay attention to, and 1% is still a significant part of the material. But here's my point. Often when we go to the prophets as uh, New Testament Christians, especially as Protestant Christians, we focus on about 8% of the prophetic literature. We only focus on 8% that seems to directly apply to us. So we like to read stuff about the New Covenant, about the Messiah, especially around Christmas, and about things that are to come, and we focus on that. And so part of the challenge of getting into the prophets is to dig into and explore all of that other material that we find in there. Now, I understand why we focus on some of these things and why we often think that the prophets have to do with things that are yet to come. And it's largely to do with the kind of language that we find in the prophetic literature. Uh, the language is a kind of a cosmic poetry. Even Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer uh, that really changed the shape of the church, Martin Luther had this to say about the language of the prophets. Listen to this. He said, they have an odd way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Maybe some sermons are like that, just this rambling on. Well, Martin Luther was challenged in reading the prophets, and if he was challenged, we might be challenged too. So let's cut ourselves some slack, let's read through them and not be too uh, anxious about understanding every little bit. So this cosmic language is really important as we come to the prophets. And when we normally hear this cosmic poetry, we often automatically think of the end of the world, of the apocalypse. It's that kind of imagery that talks about the sun and the stars and fire and brimstone and all sorts of stuff. And so we go right to the end of the world uh, when we hear this kind of cosmic poetry. But this cosmic poetry is an interesting tool in the hands of the prophet because the prophet uses this language in order to speak truth to power. That's really important to get as we go through this. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, that's another prophetic type of book that uses a lot of cosmic poetry. But we have to remember, it was written to a specific people at a specific time, and part of the purpose was to bring comfort and hope to those people in that time. And one of the reasons for the language of cosmic poetry in the book of the Revelation is so that they could safely speak truth to power. And so that's what we find in the prophets. But as well as speaking truth to power, this cosmic poetry also allows the prophets to talk about how God will ultimately bring his justice 
to all nations in the end of time. So there is an end of time portion to these prophecies. And so that's what we're looking at as we go through this. Ultimately, the prophets are really a kind of minority group that end up being shunned by Israel's elite and Israel's leaders, Israel's kings, Israel's priests. And the prophets are not very welcome most of the time. Their writings end up becoming a kind of resistance literature. And the writings and the, and the speeches are only really appreciated after people see that they have come true. In fact, there are lots of different prophets that would come up, and the true test of a prophet is that their speeches, their predictions, their whatever they're saying would actually come to pass. And if it didn't come to pass, well, that was the end of the prophet. And so this is an interesting group of people that we find writing and speaking this kind of resistance language, speaking truth to power, but often shunned by Israel's elite during that time. Well, the prophets cared deeply about the covenant commitments of Israel. And so they, they are very much focused and interested in relationship over religion. That's important as we go through the prophets. They also serve as kind of the conscience of the people, uh, especially for the leaders. One of my absolute favorite stories about a prophet actually comes not in these uh, prophetic books, but comes before this. And it's a story about King David and the prophet Nathan. And Nathan is a, an interesting prophet and he comes to King David one time because King David decided one year not to go into battle, but instead spent his time wandering around on his rooftop. He sees a woman named Bathsheba. He decides to have a one-night stand with her and then realizes that she's actually married. And so what does he do? Does he apologize? No, he doesn't. He doesn't make things right. He doesn't pursue justice. Instead, he arranges basically to have her husband murdered so that he can take her as a wife. Now in steps Nathan, the prophet. The prophet comes in to David and tells David a story. It's one of my favorite stories from a prophet in the Bible. Nathan tells David a story about a poor family that has like one sheep. And this one sheep, they probably gave it a name. It was that close. It was like a pet to them and lived in their house kind of thing. I'm embellishing a little bit to get the idea here. Um, but that family was so poor, they only had one. But they lived next to a very wealthy man who had hundreds of sheep. Well, one day the wealthy man had some guests coming, wanted to cook up a big dinner. So he decided to get a fresh lamb. And where did he go? To his hundreds of flocks? No, he went to the poor man's house, took the one sheep, butchered it, and served it up as a dinner for his guests. And when David hears the story, he is outraged and he yells at Nathan, who is that man? And Nathan points to David and he says, you are the man, you're the man. And David immediately realizes that the whole story is about him and stealing this wife, this Bathsheba, uh, this woman from this man. And so that's the role of the prophet. The prophet ends up being the conscience of the people and also the conscience of the leaders. But very, very few people are like David. Very few of them actually listen to the voice of the prophets. Well, as we look through this section of the prophets, one of the things we realize that traditionally in our Bibles, we divide it into two main sections, 
the major and the minor prophets. And some people have asked me, what is the difference? Well, length. Uh, The major prophets are longer, the minor prophets are shorter, and that's about it. The minor prophets have an equally important message as we find in the major prophets. And so as you read through that, you'll see some of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're major prophets, they're longer. And the other prophets that we find like Jonah and Micah, they're shorter, and so they're minor prophets. And so that's what we find right at the tail end, this big section at the end of Scripture. But one of the things we discover in all the prophets is that they follow a kind of pattern, a kind of theme that recurs over and over again. And so to tap into that theme, I want to invite us to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, because I think we see a great pattern of how prophecy happens and how the prophet is formed during these times and in these books. Now, it's interesting, I was just mentioning to Pastor Samuel that it was actually this time last year, on January 12th, 2020, that I was also preaching on Isaiah chapter 6. And so if you want to see a sermon or hear a sermon uh, that digs a little deeper into the actual passage, I invite you to go to our website and uh, click on sermons. You'll find it on January 12th. It's great because there's actually live people in the pews who laugh at my jokes. And so go and check that out. But for today, I just want to use Isaiah 6 as a bit of a backdrop just to uncover the pattern of the uh, prophet that we find recurring through all these prophecies. And so here's the prophetic template. It has three kind of parts to it. First of all, we see encounter. That's the first part of the making of a prophet. A prophet has an encounter with God. This is really important. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. But we see it in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 when Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The king is dead, God is not. And so Isaiah Isaiah has this encounter with God, and that's what really sets him up as a prophet. And we see this in lots of different ways through all the different prophets. Ezekiel is sitting by the rivers of Babylon on his 30th birthday. Uh, John in the New Testament is on the Isle of Patmos. Um, Isaiah here is in the temple, temple. There's some kind of location where they have a real encounter with the living God. Usually it's a terrifying encounter. Usually they get to catch a glimpse of the holiness, the power, the glory of God. That is fundamental to the making of the prophet and to these prophecies. Because you see, the prophets didn't get stirred up by simply looking around at the culture or looking around at the sin or looking around at the stuff around them and decide to do something about it. That's not how they started. They start by catching a vision of the glory of God. That's a great reminder for us. Whenever we're wondering what we need to do or what God is calling us to do, uh, don't just look around first and see what needs to be done, but spend some time with an encounter with the living God and catching a glimpse of God's glory and holiness That's what starts the prophet. Well, stage two of this uh, template of the prophetic making um, is commission. The commissioning of the prophet. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And this always occurs, not necessarily the way that Isaiah does it, but in some way God commissions the prophet so that when the prophet goes out, He or she, they're not speaking their own words. 
They're speaking, thus saith the Lord. These are the words of God. Now, usually the prophets are quite reluctant to be commissioned because they know that this task is a task that nobody wants because nobody listens to them and God makes them do weird stuff. And so nobody wants that kind of life because a lot of these prophets, they were married, they had kids, they had a life. Um, some of them were wealthy, some of them were very poor, some of them were in politics, some of them were farmers, um, all kinds of um, spectrums of life. Uh, but they really didn't want this job, except Isaiah. Isaiah is kind of like donkey on Shrek. He's saying, pick me, pick me. Uh, but even Isaiah has some reluctance. And so the prophets often, during their commissioning, they kind of give an excuse why God shouldn't use them. You know, I can't speak very well in public. I hate speaking in public. That's one of the things a prophet gave in the Old Testament. That's an excuse. Or I'm too young. Or, or I'm too afraid, or the risk is too great. Even Isaiah has a bit of an excuse as you read through this passage. He says, you know what? I'm too sinful. I'm too full of sin. I've just caught a glimpse of the holiness of God. How can I possibly speak on behalf of God, knowing that the people around me are sinful, and I'm sinful too, because I'm part of the people. But here's kind of the message, because God always overcomes the obstacle that's thrown to him, the excuse that's thrown his way. And God ultimately, when he calls, he also equips. And that's one of the lessons we find from the prophets. So we have the encounter, and then we have the commission, and then the third phase of the making of a prophet, the message. And the message always has kind of two parts to it, part judgment and part hope. Sometimes a whole lot of judgment with a little glimmer of hope, but that's usually what happens in this message. And the message is usually very specific. So the prophets aren't going out just with general words that people are meant to listen to. They're usually sent to a specific people at a specific time with a special message for them from God. So some of the prophets are sent to Israel in the north, the northern kingdom. Some are sent to Judah in the south. Some are sent to nations like Nineveh and cities like Nineveh. Some are sent to the exiles in Babylon. Uh, some are sent to the nations of the world in general, uh, but they are commissioned and they're given a message that's specific to those people at that time. And that's really, really important. But the message is always hard. And we find that in Isaiah chapter 6 too, that you're going to be preaching and hearing they won't hear, seeing they won't see. And this is going to be the response their hearts are actually going to get harder as you preach. I cannot imagine having to preach year after year and year after year and not have any kind of positive response to the messages. And yet this was the calling of most of the prophets. It was going to be a hard message. And sometimes it was going to get weird. I think of poor Ezekiel in Babylon having to lay on one side and then having to lay on the other uh, just for, you know, days and days on end, or having to cook his, his uh, supper with dung and then eat it, or making little uh, uh, statues and models of Jerusalem and then destroying it. People must have thought he was out of his mind. That was Ezekiel. But think of Hosea having to marry a prostitute. Or think of Isaiah. If you read on in the, the prophecy of Isaiah, he had to walk around for a time naked, 
And so who would want this job, this job, this role of a prophet? You can understand why people sometimes avoided them or didn't want them around. Even Jeremiah, was, they end up throwing him in a deep cistern for a time. So this is the message they carry, and the message is, thus saith the Lord. A lot of the message, like we find in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, have to do with judgment. And then some of the message, like we find in verse 13 of our passage, gives a glimmer of hope, a seed of hope uh, that people are meant to hold on to. So that's kind of how the prophet is formed. Uh, this, this template that we find over and over again in the prophetic literature, encounter, commission, and then a message that they're meant to carry. But there's also a prevalent theme, and that's what I really want to draw our attention to this morning. There's a prevalent theme that runs through the, the uh, prophecies and the prophetic writings that we sometimes miss. And we miss it because we're focused on uh, the prophecies that have to do with the new covenant or the Messiah or things that are to come. And the theme that we find, this greater theme of the prophets, is justice. Justice is the pervading theme of the prophets. Now, sometimes when we hear the word justice, at least when I do, uh, I get confused with the idea of justice. Justice for me sometimes sounds like retribution or revenge. I want justice or I demand justice, that kind of thing. But the biblical references to the word justice, it really means to make right. Uh, justice is first and foremost a relational term. It's people living in right relationship with God, with one another, and with the natural creation around them. That's part of the prophetic sense of justice and the call to justice that we find through the prophets. And so in the prophets, we find the special focus on living in a right way with a special group of people. And the group of people the, the prophets focus on are the last, the lost, and the least. Those who are on the margins, those who are considered poor, or those who are considered strangers, or those who are considered to be vulnerable for a number of different reasons. And justice is paying attention, especially from the wealthy and the powerful and the elite, calling them to pay attention to the needs of the vulnerable, the poor, and the marginalized. That's the relationship of justice the prophets are calling people to. Because you see... When they talk about judgment, judgment is coming for a reason. And the reason over and over again is given, and it's this, that there is injustice in society, but especially among the leaders of Israel or of Judah or of some of these other nations. There's an injustice. There's a neglect of the poor, the marginalized, those who are vulnerable. So this is injustice. Here's how we might describe it as we find it in the prophets. The injustice is the powerful treating the vulnerable and poor, who are also their fellow citizens, as sources of wealth and unpaid labor, using coercion, bribery, dishonesty, legal technicalities, and even violence for their own gain. So it's the elite of the nations, the powerful of the nations, gaining more power and wealth off the backs of the vulnerable, off the backs of the poor. So justice is the opposite of that. Justice is having those with power behaving honestly and generously and respectfully 
to the poor and the vulnerable of society. And that comes out in a number of ways. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, but I encourage you as you read through the prophets, pay attention to this call to justice and how the prophets define it during these times. So this sense of justice in the prophets, it's so critical that it's even more important, sorry, Samuel and others, but it's even more important than acts of worship. In fact, the prophets over and over again say, forget about your acts of worship for now, get your justice right, get your relationships right, and then come and worship. And that's what we find in Amos chapter five. Here's an example, one of many that we could pull from the prophets. This is God saying to Israel, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. You have stinky worship. And I'm going to point out why. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Away with the noise of your songs. What a statement God is making to Israel. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. That's the heart of God expressed through the prophets, this heart for justice and get your justice right before you come and perform your acts of worship. We see this also in Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah chapter six, we're told, Isaiah says, I live among a people of unclean lips and I'm unclean myself. Well, what is this uncleanliness? Isaiah chapter one spells it out for us. Uh, God says to the people, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. That's injustice, is doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. And then he defines justice in this way. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Pay attention to those who are most vulnerable and then come and worship in my house. And so although God says these words to the nations in general, to hold everyone accountable to the sense of justice, God specifically directs these words to his own people, primarily because of what he has already done for them and because they should know better. And that's the call, that's the challenge of justice in the prophets. But here's the point I also want to make. That call to justice doesn't end with the prophets. It's not just directed at Israel and Judah and nations long time ago. Actually, Jesus picks up this call of justice, and we find it all throughout the Gospels. We find it in Luke. In fact, I would say it's impossible to understand the message of Jesus without understanding justice in the prophets. When Jesus has his first opportunity to speak in public, to read a passage of scripture in public, of all the scriptures he could have taken up, he takes up the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he reads this, his first public reading, remember, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Justice. Justice is still the call of the gospel. And here's the thing. It doesn't even end with Jesus. It doesn't even end with the cross. 
it is given on to the church. In other words, it's given on to you and me. That call of justice is still very real and relevant to the church today. And we find that in James chapter 1 and verse 27. And here James is directly echoing the passage in Isaiah chapter 1 that we've already read. James says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Justice. There's justice. This right relationship with one another, but especially a right relationship with the most vulnerable, and then this right relationship with God. This is justice. So this is my point. In all of this, this is my point, that the message of the prophets is also the message of the gospel. It's this one message that continues through and is expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Greg Forster has this quote, and uh, I'll say it for you because I found it helpful. He says, the gospel isn't only a message of forgiveness, but also of restoration to righteousness. God forgives our injustice in order to restore us to justice. He saves us not only because he loves us, but also because he hates sin and will not allow his beautiful world to forever remain under the influence of evil. We've been saved for a purpose. It's interesting that many of us have memorized and are really fond of quoting Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. If you know this, you can say it with me uh, right now. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I think that's the King James version of that. And what a powerful verse about God's grace and about being saved. But I think sometimes we forget verse 10, the very next verse, which goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, for justice, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been saved for a purpose, and part of that purpose is justice. You know, I'm so thankful here at Bonavista Baptist Church that we have some gifted and spirit-filled people who lead us in consistent acts and ministries of justice all throughout the year. I was reflecting this last week on our pastoral visitation group who continue to pay attention to those who are most vulnerable in our congregation. I think of the refugee committee who have just committed a major or completed a major commitment with one particular family and continue to have such a heart for justice in this area of refugee ministry. I think of our benevolent team watching on how they can help those who are in crisis mode that are in need of a special assistance or our missions committee and whether they lead us into Guatemala or Bolivia or Lebanon or Calgary, that there's this sense that we are pursuing justice, how to live rightly, properly, especially with those who are most vulnerable uh, during these days. But you know, it's not simply a function of the institution of the church. Don't wait for the church to organize in order to act justly in society. This is a call of personal discipleship as well. This is actually what it really means to walk in faith during these days. We, this is the essence of our duty toward God 
and toward our fellow human beings. And in fact, as we wrap up this uh, thinking on the prophets and this thinking on justice, I want to leave you with the words of one of the prophets that really sums up this message for us. And I hope you take it to heart, even if you've heard it a hundred times before. From the prophet Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8. This wraps things up for us today. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. May God give us the grace, the strength, the encouragement to walk in that way, in his way, during these days. Let's act with justice. Amen.